Hey, what up? Hello, everybody. Alex Kapitko here, Centered from Reality Podcast, and it is Monday, December 4th. We are moving. We're almost about a sixth through the month. Yeah, I'm going to keep doing this annoying countdown because time to me is just a strange void at this point. But anyways, it is Monday. My knee's feeling a little bit better. It was actually in the 50s today, nice and sunny out. And last night, I'm a little bit tired today. I'm kind of running on fumes today. Um, Green Bay played really well against the Chiefs last night. And I was so happy, so happy, but stayed up too late. But anyways, really happy to see them. Green Bay is is giving me some hope again. And it's weird watching these games and just watching Lambeau Field. Part of me kind of misses the Midwest, uh, especially Wisconsin, parts of Illinois, um, even Iowa. I like some parts of, but I'm kind of missing it. I think part of it is because here out in the West Coast, most of the people I'm around or hang out with, they're either Niners fans or don't watch sports at all. And there was something nice when I was in Chicago where, you know, I'd wear my Packers hat and go with some friends out to a bar and everyone in there would want to talk sports. And they're, they're like, oh, yeah, I'm a Lions fan. I'm a Vikings fan. I'm a Bears fan. I'm a Packers fan. And you can talk, you know, talk some shit. And it just feels like sports really drives community and celebrating out there. And I did really enjoy that. I obviously had my issues with Chicago in a lot of ways, but I do like the sports culture out there. I also liked going to some Northwestern games. They're obviously not good in the Big Ten compared to like a Michigan or whatnot, but I do like the sports culture out there, and I will miss that. The mixture of good food and good beer and good sports is is pretty fun. So anyways, not a sports podcast. I'll spare you guys. But at the end of the show, if we have time, I want to talk about uh, Nicolas Maduro. I haven't talked about him, Venezuelan. I mean, they call him a president. I call him an autocratic dictator, but he is... There are reports about him holding a referendum that a lot of people think is just to distract from his public policy failures, but basically the referendum involves invading, or annexing is a better word, Guyana for oil, because apparently they're arguing they can't get any access to these massive discoveries of oil off the Guyanese coast, Guyanese coast, sorry, and Basically, people wonder he's facing an election next year. Obviously unpopular. The country's a shit show. Does he annex Guyana and do that? (laughs) I mean, it sounds like a mess, but it also highlights to me once again how we're getting into a weird world of spheres of influence, of liberalism, and of violence again. So should be interesting. We'll talk about that at the end. But first, we need to talk about what's going on in Israel and in Gaza. And so I want to start with Lloyd Austin, U.S. Defense Secretary. He, had, he pretty much summed up everything I've thought so far, and he's been getting a lot of criticism from the Lindsey Graham, Graham types, the, the really war hawkish, let's just level Palestine types. But I think he actually had a good point, and it's something I've been saying because I've got into discussions, arguments, debates with people about how I am pro-Israel. I think the term Zionism is not always used correctly. But I also think that Israel is shooting itself in the foot right now and is killing way too many civilians and needs to be careful and siege warfare is not a good idea, but also indiscriminate leveling of cities. I've seen numbers like 80% of Gaza right now is just uninhabitable. So anyways, Lloyd Austin getting a lot of criticism from the right, but I think brought up a good point. Basically, he urged Israel to protect civilians as it battles Hamas in Gaza. And he said that shielding non-combatants is necessary for victory in the urban fight against Hamas. And I totally agree. Totally agree. I don't think that should be very controversial, but of course it is. And basically, he was at the Reagan National Defense Forum in California, 
And he said in quotes, he had learned a thing or two about urban warfare while fighting in Iraq and leading the campaign against ISIS. I'm going to read a few more quotes from he said. He said, like Hamas, ISIS was deeply embedded in urban areas, and the international coalition against ISIS worked hard to protect civilians and create humanitarian corridors, even during tough battles. He said later, in quotes, so the lesson is not that you can win in urban warfare by protecting civilians. The lesson is that you can only win in urban warfare by protecting civilians. If you drive Gaza's civilians into the arms of the enemy, you replace a tactical you replace a tactical victory with a strategic defeat. And I think that is a very good point. And it's something I've talked about before. It's like, okay, yes, Israel has the capabilities. It's a highly armed security state. It has the, it has the ability to just destroy Gaza and eventually wipe out Hamas. But in doing that, are you really safer? I would argue no. And I am more of a realist on what's happening in, in Israel and in Palestine right now, where I, I recognize that I don't think there can be peace and stability with Hamas in power. But then at the same time, I think Israel will never defeat Hamas. And if you're never going to defeat Hamas, this, this just becomes some sort of martyr victory for Hamas, a Pyrrhic victory for Israel, and potentially a growing war if some of the things Israel wants to do happen, like flooding with sea, flooding the tunnels with seawater, sending Gazans to the south, and then bombing the south too, pretty much kicking everyone out, forcing Arab countries to take in refugees, bringing the United Nations in as a peacekeeping force, which which is not going to happen, by the way. But this is all just just a mess. And again, I don't trust Hamas. I am still sickened by the people that are defending from the river to the sea. I see it all the time. I am just irritated with a lot of the people saying Hamas. I've seen this all over my social media. People talking about how Hamas treated the hostages better than Israel. Like, it's just insane to me how quickly there is so much sympathy for Hamas. You can be sympathetic to, to the Palestinian people, full stop. Do not be sympathetic towards Hamas. Do not. Because they have created this situation. They have ruled Gaza by fear. There haven't been elections in almost 20 years now. And they want this to happen because it makes them look like the victims. And that makes them very small in my books. But anyways, I, I, think what, I think what Austin is talking about here is correct. And the United States is trying, but I don't think we're doing enough. I think we need to put more limits on what we're giving to Israel if they're going to be used to just level hospitals and kill a lot of innocent kids. Because the thing is, is that it's... It's bad. It's just bad, obviously, the lives, but it's also bad when most of the rockets being used, or a good amount of them at least, are being built in the United States. It's, it's going to just breed more hatred for us, too. It makes us less safe, and it makes Israel less safe. So if you guys have any ideas on how you destroy Hamas but also don't kill civilians, please let me know. But I think this is just a shit show, and I, I've said this time and time again. The war in Ukraine is fairly black and white to me. This one... <sighs> is literally like generations of each side that have fought and killed one another. Just again, having all of this historical trauma along with modern aggression and hatred. And I just don't know how you deal with that. And of course, fighting has resumed. We'll get to that in a moment. But I did want to stick on Lloyd Austin for a moment and just talk about how one of my former, one of the former guys I liked, Senator Lindsey Graham, now one of my least favorite people. Obviously, he's been on quite a journey since John McCain died. 
I, I do pinpoint his craziness, well, at least his escalation and craziness to them. But anyways, read Will Salatin's small book in The Bulwark about Lindsey Graham. He It's really good, by the way. But anyways, Lindsey Graham <laughs> called uh, Lloyd Austin naive because he was urging you know Israel to take stronger effects to protect uh, Palestinian civilians. He said in quotes here, he's so naive. I mean, I've just, all, I've just lost all confidence in the guy. And this was on say, a CNN's State of the Union. Later on, he went and said, how about focusing on protecting our soldiers, men and women in Syria and Iraq? Strategic defeat would be inflaming the Palestinians. They're already inflamed. I, I don't think he totally understands what Austin is meaning because everyone from Jocko Willink to now Floyd Austin, or Lloyd Austin, sorry, are talking exactly about strategic defeat here and how Israel is just doing this completely wrong with the campaigns they're doing right now. Now, I don't, I don't think at all this is Lloyd Austin's fault, but I do understand what Lindsey Graham means when he talks about protecting our, our forces abroad because I don't know if you guys have heard much about this. It's been covered okay, but um, there were ballistic missiles fired by the Houthi rebels in Yemen. I have an episode a few weeks ago, so you can go back and listen to that, where the, the Houthis did declare war on Israel and have been trying to get involved. And the Houthi rebels did uh, strike three commercial sip, uh, ships in the Red Sea on Sunday, while a U.S. warship shot down three drones. And uh, the AP has a good piece on this. It writes here in quotes, The strikes marked an escalation in a series of maritime attacks in the Mideast linked to the Israel-Hamas uh, Israel war, as multiple vessels found themselves in the crosshairs of a single Houthi assault for the first time in the conflict. Notice that, first time in the conflict. So things are getting escalatory. And the article continues, The U.S. vowed to consider all appropriate responses in the wake of the attack, specifically calling out Iran after tensions have been high for years. And I, I've already talked about the Iranian and Saudi influences in Yemen, the Yemeni civil war, and how it's getting interesting to see if this brings in the Saudis closer to the Israeli side, because if Iran is supporting the Houthis and Saudi Arabia wants to destroy the Houthis, how does this go if the Houthis get more involved against the United States? Does the United States demand Saudi Arabia to help us? Because obviously we've been helping their pretty much just humanitarian nightmare in Yemen. And so this is this is not not good, guys. This is really not good. So I, I understand what Lindsey Graham says when we have attacks on American troops and ships and commercial vessels abroad. Totally understandable. And it, it is something that is getting more and more worrying. I, I should have knocked on wood last week or maybe it was the week before when I said I'm glad this hasn't exploded into something bigger yet. But again, it still could. This is early. Now, I should also note, though, that I don't think the Biden administration is not doing enough. Lindsey Graham's been on the record like he wants to go to war with Iran. He wants to level Palestine. This guy is more war hawkish than he's been in quite some time. And I, I don't think Biden could ever do anything to make him happy is kind of my point here. So anyways, of course, like the Lindsey Graham types, the Nikki Haley types, unfortunately, they would they would like to see us really hold Iran accountable. But I've said time and time again, a ground war or an invasion or some sort of conflict with Iran would be World War Three and it would be a nightmare and we'd lose a, just a shit ton of people. So let's just not even go there. I think the Biden administration is trying right now. And honestly, with how complex the world is right now and how bad this situation is right now, I feel like trying is, is a pretty good first step. Now, before we, before we get into the chaos in Gaza, um, as people are fleeing south and there's still reports of bombings and now they're heading to Rafah. Anyways, <laughs> this is lovely. Speaking of 
of our buddy Lindsey Graham again for a second. Basically, Liz Cheney was on John Dickerson's... Um, he, she was doing an interview, sorry, with John Dickerson on CBS, and she was talking about how the U.S. is sleepwalking into autocracy or a dictatorship, I guess is what she said, and I, I agree with her. And um, she's very obviously concerned about Trump 2024. I think a lot of us are. I definitely am, as you guys are pretty aware. But Graham responded when he was on State of the Union on CNN on Sunday. He said that Trump was a better president than Biden, and Liz Cheney just has personal grudges with Trump, and that it's not a big deal. He's not worried. It's overreaction. Lindsey Graham needs to get his head out of his ass or whatever's happening to him because it is getting really just tiring watching these people defend reality. So anyways, Lindsey Graham, not my best guy, but I just wanted to add that in there for a second. So let's get to, unfortunately, Israel and Gaza and what is going on there. And I guess it would be a bummer if I didn't say this as well, is that there's also not a lot of talk of what's going on in North Israel or on the Lebanese border, but there's also still a lot of rocket exchange, Israel sending rockets over into Lebanon and Hamas doing some small operations there as well. So I mean, there's still so many pieces here. But anyways, the ceasefire obviously ended, I think it was on Friday, right? Yeah, on, on Friday. And now actually some of the most intense Israeli airstrikes of this entire situation have started. And Reuters, which I really like their coverage on this, writes here in quotes, Intense Israel airstrikes hit the south of the Gaza Strip on Monday killing and wounding dozens of Palestinians. And guys, this is the part where I do take issue, is that this includes areas where Israel had told people to seek shelter. Residents and journalists on the ground have reported this. And then you also have Israeli troops and tanks moving their ground campaign against militants in the south. They gained, obviously, as we've talked about, the north has been pretty devastated. They've gained a lot of control of that. And now they are moving south. And some of the people that are, you know, almost like completely supportive of Israel will talk about how, well, in the South, Egypt should have been more willing to take in refugees. The problem here, and I've talked about it many times, is that a lot of the Arab world uh, looks down on the Palestinians. There is a lot of internal, I don't know if racism is the right word, but there is a lot of, the, yeah, just discrimination. And also at the same time, I, I've also read some interesting pieces and, and listened to some takes on podcasts about how... Some people also think that a lot of the Arab world doesn't want to take in Palestinians because they think if they take them in, they will never go back because Israel wants these countries to take in the Palestinians so that they can take Gaza and the Palestinians will never come back. Again, I think there are radical fringes inside of Netanyahu's government that want that, but I don't know if that is generally what everyone wants to do. And I don't even particularly know if the United Nations or the United States for just a couple would actually really try to let Israel do this. But then again, yes, I am I, not surprised that there are some factions inside of Netanyahu's coalition, and he probably sympathizes with this as well because he is a hardliner and quite a nationalist, that if you have Egypt and Jordan, for example, just to name two, take in Palestinian refugees, it empties out parts of the Gaza Strip, and yes, they can eventually control it and you know expand. And again, I, I, think there, I, I think there's a bit of an overreaction to saying that is Israel's goal. Israel's goal is to take out Hamas. But then again, you just worry about like what the side effects of that could be. And maybe if they indirectly do this or there are elements inside of Netanyahu's government that do agree with that. So anyways, moving on, though, North is devastated. 
Israel is starting its bombing campaign in the south. This is where all the pretty much the 80% of Palestinians that have been or of Gaza's. So, okay, <laughs> let me go back. Reuters notes that about 80% of Gaza's 2.3 million people have fled their homes in the bombing campaign. And basically, they've some of them have, well, I mean, some of them have died, obviously, but some of them have headed south to like Khan Yunis, now heading further south to Rafa, stuff like that. And so you have a large swath of people moving south because they were told to go south to places like Khan Yunis, but residents are telling reporters that areas which they had been told to go to were coming under fire as well. Also then you have reports that tanks have driven into Gaza from the border fence and cut off the main north-south route, which was like, as I talked about about a month ago, one of the only routes. Like there's not a lot large um, infrastructure inside of this area. So people aren't really able to get anywhere unless they walk. And so the Israeli military also said the central road out of Khan Yunis to the north now constitutes a battlefield and was now shut. So it's a mess. It is a tragic, disastrous mess. Now, I, I think the Atlantic has a really interesting piece. And it was actually back, I think, October 9th when I did my first podcast on this after kind of processing things for, the, for a few days. Plus, I was dog-sitting over that weekend, and I had no phone service or Wi-Fi, so I kind of had to detach. I actually didn't really follow the events until about October 9th. But anyways, I talked about how I worry this could become a Pyrrhic victory for Israel. Anyways, though, basically this article starts, and we'll get into that in a minute, it kind of starts with talking about how we are starting to understand the clarity of what Israel's trying to do. I've mentioned this earlier on the pod, and it's just that it is trying to push into the south, and it really does want to take most of most of Gaza to basically be able to control the ground to then be able to go after Hamas. Of course, the human lives involved in that is not a great part of the conversation. And I think this is a great line in the article. By the way, the article is called um, Israel's Impossible Dilemma by Hussein Abish. He is, he's an interesting guy. I don't always agree with him as, as their writers, but he's a senior resident scholar at the Arab Gulf States Institute in Washington. Smart guy, but interesting lens on these issues. But anyways, he writes, as a consequence, obviously talking about the next phase we're starting to see in quotes, the next phase of this vicious conflict will almost certainly lead Israel to an inevitable dilemma, whether to grant Hamas a small and ultimately hollow victory or a much larger and all too real one. And again, I think he plans or writes out a scenario that's pretty accurate. He talks about how the next phase is clear, seizing all of the above ground urban areas in Gaza south, just as it did in the north. He also talks about how then there will be a battle for control of Hamas's underground equipment, its network, its fighters, etc. And interestingly, Politico has a piece, I don't know why I laughed, but it's just kind of insane. But Israel may seek to destroy the tunnels once everyone's out of there by flooding them with seawater. Again, I don't like the idea of once everyone's out of there because that just sounds like like an occupation. And I don't like to use the settler colonialism rhetoric or the occupation rhetoric because I don't think it usually is true or holds up well with what we're talking about. But in this case, like getting everyone out of there so then you can literally flood the tunnels potentially is kind of insane to me. And obviously the goal, and I support this goal, I just don't know if I support how they're doing it, it is to inflict damage and destruction on Hamas where it's unable to govern Gaza 
or pose a threat to Israel for any time soon. The problem is that's impossible. As I've talked about, it's not going to happen. He writes here in quotes, Hamas is a brand name, not a list of individuals and objects. Israel could destroy its leaders and all of its equipment, declare victory, and leave Gaza to its fate. Hamas, in some form, would still crawl out of the rubble and declare a divine victory of its own. And this is where I think it gets into a kind of interesting situation. And it's that I think you could see both sides, or one of the two sides, and I don't even know which one, facing a Pyrrhic victory. And what I mean here is that something that is obvious to me now, and I'm sure both sides of this, is that Gaza is going to be completely destroyed, especially the north, hopefully not the south, but the, the trends show that. And this confrontation is something, of course, Hamas deliberately engineered for its own political purpose purposes, and it's worked. It has worked. And the problem, though, is that Maybe the people in Gaza turn on Hamas, maybe, and it becomes kind of a political situation. Basically, the idea is like, what does like what should Israel do? Does Israel leave and allow Palestine to destabilize while Hamas basically says this is a religious victory, or I guess you could say a Pyrrhic victory? Or does Israel stay? And mobilize Hamas to hate us even more and hate the Israelis even more after years of war. It's like if Israel leaves, right now I think a lot of Palestine is on the side of Hamas just because of how brutal the Israeli bombings are. But if Israel leaves now, eventually you could see the division that would that would continue and follow maybe actually cause Hamas to eat itself from inside. Because I think if Israel stays the political victories for Hamas could happen, and then you have years of war. Going back, though, to this Atlantic piece, Israel's impossible dilemma, it brings up an interesting point about how Hamas could also face a Pyrrhic victory, or as he calls it, a divine victory over Israel. And he talks, he gives he gives us a really interesting historical context to this, which I, I, I do remember reading about back in undergrad years, but it's been a long time. But basically, he talks about Hamas's status and situation during its last war with Israel in 2006. He writes here in quotes, Hezbollah received enormous support from Lebanese society, including many communities that normally took a very dim view of it. The rally around the flag effect was powerful during the fighting, especially because Hezbollah performed far better than expected, and because Israel took care to ensure that almost every part of the Lebanese social mosaic felt its wrath. But now the, the article gets interesting down the road because it talks about that after the fighting stopped, basically Hezbollah's there still because, you know, Israel stopped and, and Hezbollah's still there. And sorry, I said Hamas earlier. I meant Hezbollah. But Hezbollah is still there. And the Lebanese society is kind of meant to survey what's happened and look itself in the mirror. And it seems on a very general general way that, Hez that basically civil society and the Lebanese people concluded that Hezbollah had kind of dragged the country into an unnecessary conflict. And basically, Nassan Nasrallah, who is, who is the Hezbollah leader at the time, he had to go on TV and apologize. And basically... The article argues that, 
yes, when Israel was attacking Lebanon and the war was going on, Hezbollah got support. But as soon as the war was over, a lot of the public, pretty much everyone, was aware that Israel would do disproportionate deterrence, basically. And basically, Hezbollah knew this would happen. And a lot of the population saw this as careless and reckless and incompetence, and they didn't want Hezbollah to be there. And so, and sorry, so I guess you kind of have to think that if Israel can play its cards right and maybe change some of its strategies, there, there can be a change of opinion, a political change of opinion inside of Gaza. The problem is, is that that's getting less and less likely with every day because as parents are losing their kids and kids are losing their parents and friends, etc., it gets harder for that reality to happen. But I think what you want here is a political crisis inside of Gaza. And I, I mean that. Like, you want the people unhappy with Hamas. And right now the opposite is happening. You don't want a perpetual war. You don't want the alternatives of, like, the United Nations sending in peacekeepers you don't want police forces. I personally don't even want Israel kind of annexing it and controlling it until there's a political solution because we historically know that that's not exactly a possibility. And we also know that Netanyahu's government has helped prop up Hamas over the years because he saw it as a useful chaos agent. And so very difficult. But I do think that, you know, going back to what I said about what Lloyd Austin said and getting into this article – and also getting into just the indiscriminate bombing that's continuing, I think I think Israel needs to play this smarter. And again, I can't even imagine how devastating this was to the country, October 7th was. But, you know, we're learning more and more about how people knew almost a year out that Hamas was training. They had intelligence about it. There were warnings that were brushed off. And we know Netanyahu's government has been focused on protecting settlers in the West Bank. And so I, I do think that political accountability is the key here. And if you did, I think Netanyahu needs to go. I know the argument is that they're at war. You can't remove a president during war. But this New York Times article about the intelligence failures makes it look like nothing compared to 9-11. Basically, you had, you had people inside of Israeli, Israeli intelligence for about a year talking about them training on paragliders, getting prepared. The, I, I read some of the email chains and some of the just briefs that have been released to the public, and this makes Netanyahu's government look even worse. This, this looks significantly worse than the intelligence failures prior to 9-11. And so I don't know if you can have a rational solution to this on the Israeli side unless you get rid of the people that completely neglected this. Netanyahu is in self-preservation mode, and you have a party that supports just settler invasions of parts of like parts of the West Bank that are not theirs. And so it, it gets really complex. But what I know is that leadership is the issue here because I don't think Israel, I, well, I think Lloyd Austin's correct, is, is this could be quite a strategic loss for Israel. And I think this is at the end of the day where leadership could change this and a better strategy could make it so you play Hamas at its own game. Because strategy, messaging, and knowing how Israel is going to react has always been how these how these groups act. So dark stuff, but we will move on. So the last thing I want to talk about as briefly as I can, I'll start by just mentioning in autocratic countries, they hold referendums a lot of times. This has happened in Pinochet's Chile, which ironically actually brought him down because there was a strong no campaign. That's a story for another time. But basically, in a lot of autocratic countries, they hold referendums to, you know, put a guise up where it looks like you have a destitution. 
happening. You, of course, doctor the outcome. You rig the votes. And usually you come out with like 99% or 95 yes on the referendum. Usually there's never an organized no campaign. And the reason I talk about this is because Victor, not Victor Orban got a Freudian slip. Nicolas Maduro did this in Venezuela recently. And a little side note is that, you know, we talk about the South China Sea a lot and how China claims parts off the coast of Vietnam that, that are not legally recognized as part of China, but China claims they are. Well, Venezuela has a thing going on where basically Venezuela claims like a lot of the east coast of Guyana and a lot of the water outside of it, south of Trinidad and Tobago. And what's happened is that, I think it was in 2015, ExxonMobil made a series of massive discoveries of giant oil reserves. Some are in Venezuelan waters, some are not. Venezuela claims that all of them are, but from my understanding, international law says they are not. And I don't have to probably tell you guys that Venezuela is not exactly doing well economically politically or just ethically, in my opinion, democratically, definitely a no. And Nicolas Maduro, who faces an election next year, he is trying to mobilize the country and he set forward a referendum on basically a centuries-old agreement of what the border is. And basically they want to take the oil, which from my understanding is like mainly in... Guyana, but it's kind of also in Venezuela. I'm looking at the map. It's complex. But basically, the existing border was agreed on in 1899, and he's put out a referendum with five questions that want to declare that illegal so they could annex parts of Guyana so that they could take the oil. I mean, that's very simplified, but that's it. The Economist writes here in quotes, the most provocative question came last asking voters if they agreed that two-thirds of the current landmass of Guyana should be absorbed by Venezuela, forming an entire new state. The article writes, the result of the, rest of the referendum was wholly predictable. All five questions received more than 95% of yes votes. And of course, this is because the electoral authority, the CNAE, is the one that runs it. <laughs> and, and, and the thing is, is that turnout's low. Turnout's very low. It's always low in these like authoritarian referendums where they want to say, oh, look, we're a democracy. People can vote. But in reality, <laughs> The Economist writes that even Maduro's electoral board said that only 10.6 million votes had been cast. According to the numbers I'm seeing right now, Venezuela has a population of 28.2 million people. So you have a little bit over a third voting. <laughs> and it seems like a lot of apathy plays. But I wonder what happens next, mainly. Because, of course, you know, Nicolas Maduro here has said that the Venezuelan people spoke loud and clear, and he's saying this is a clear sign that things need to be changed. But I don't know if a little bit over a third really understand this, or the people that are voting. It's just a mess. And also the thing here, too, is that The Economist argues, and I probably would agree with this, is that this seems like kind of an own goal for the Maduro regime because we have to remember that the U.S. lifted quite a range of sanctions for another six months or so. Also, 
In October, representatives of the regime uh, signed an agreement in Barbados with members of the opposition over how the election might be held. Basically, when you look at that and also look at the United States lifting sanctions, this kind of means that right now the regime can begin selling oil at prices that are not discounted on the black market. They can sell it at current market prices. And Maduro, my, my argument would be is that Maduro needs the country to keep failing to maintain power. He doesn't want a democratic process. He doesn't want a better electoral system. He doesn't want Venezuelan oil, in a sense, being back on the market at market prices, because what that means is that he's not a pariah anymore and he can't have such an iron grip on the people. But then you have Vladimir Padrino Lopez, who is the defense minister of Venezuela, and he issued kind of a threat slash non-threat against Guyana. He said the border dispute is not a war for now. But then he also said it has a massive military advantage over Guyana. <laughs> but the problem here is that, look, like, I don't like Lula, Luis Ignacio Lula de Silva, who is the president of Brazil. I don't like him. He's, he's enough of a leftist that he has kind of ignored blaming Maduro for the economic disaster that, that Venezuela is. Right now, when it has comparable inflation rates to Zimbabwe, I think you probably have a problem. But anyways, the thing is, the United States and Brazil would swiftly come to Guyana's aid. Like, it's stupid. It's an own goal. I think, I think an own goal is the best way to put this. But Maduro's a survivor, and he is trying to rally the people towards a nationalist cause to bring in more oil, more domination, and again question outsiders. Because this is a guy who is hesitant of international organizations, interna hesitant towards r rival states in his area, and he's quite um, – he, he's, he's kind of what I would call a socialist nationalist where you nationalize all of your organizations and you socialize a, a majority of them as well, and it becomes just a nightmare. I don't think this is going to be his Waterloo by any means. Maybe it's a liability. I don't particularly know. But the but the fun thing here is that, you know, they're talking about how they're trying to open elections in Venezuela. I don't see it happening. But I also see this as a bigger trend, is that you're having big illiberal powers think that they can redefine borders. And... Our entire international system right now functions off of the acceptance that you can't just go in and annex countries. That's, again, why I'm so pro-helping Ukraine and why this, to me, also sounds like another fucking nightmare. Excuse my language, but I don't think he's actually going to do it. <laughs> I hope not. But it seems like there is kind of a breakdown in adherence to our current law and order global system. So... Anyways, lots of happy topics for today. I'm going to have to keep following this one because I didn't know too much about it until yesterday and I was reading up on it and it's kind of interesting. So anyways, you can find me on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, Podbean. I think you guys know the rest. Have a good day.